0: Morning. If you haven't noticed, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Um, in the church calendar, this is a new beginning. This is a fresh start. Uh, this is our new year as the church. So, as we prepare our hearts for room, like the old Carol says, so we prepare our hearts for room for the coming Christ child, I I can't help but think about what the people back then must have been feeling and thinking during this time. You see, they had been hoping for something, but they didn't realize how close he really was. In the mid-1800s, a a guy named Phillips Brooks, who I happen to be related to, (laughs) <laughs> he, he penned the words to the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, that most of us know. And one of the lines in this carol, in this song, stands out to me every time I hear it. It's the words, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And so, of course, I think about an ancient town, an ancient village, um, in the dark of night. That's the picture that comes to my mind. Is that what comes to your mind as well? Well, that's, that's right. <coughs> However, this darkness that he speaks of had been lasting for generations. They were a people who had been hoping and waiting for someone to come and save them. And that person had not shown up yet. It was into this darkness that light came, the light of salvation, the light of a fresh start, a new beginning. And so today on this first Sunday of Advent of a new year for us, I'm reminded that the light of salvation still breaks through the darkness. The light of salvation broke into the darkness of atheism to someone named C.S. Lewis that we're so familiar with. The light of salvation came into that darkness and continues to shine through his writings and through his teachings even 50 years after his death it was into the darkness of addiction that the light of salvation came to my friend joe this addiction that was so heavy in his life and yet the light of salvation came And now he ministers to those around him who struggle with the same kind of issues and and problems. (laughs) It's into the the darkness of a bad attitude, bad relationships, popularity contests, um, the potential disaster of simply being a girl in the seventh grade, um, that the light of salvation broke through. And he didn't just save my soul, he saved my future. He saved me from what could have been, restored relationships, and called me to be a light to those around me. It doesn't take long to see the darkness around us, does it? We see it in the news, we see it daily in our neighborhoods, maybe even in our homes. But today, we anticipate the light of salvation, that everlasting light that's shining in the dark streets of our lives. So today, may you be reminded of how that light broke through in your own life, the light of salvation came and saved you from whatever darkness you had been in. May you be reminded of that and then be that light to those around you.
1: Well, good morning. It is the first Sunday of Advent, as Jen read for us and, and uh, taught us just a few moments ago. This is an exciting time of the year for the church. To, to kind of reposition our minds, our hearts, our faith, toward the very beginning of what we typically think of when we think of salvation, full and free. Coming in the person of Jesus Christ, not in the method of a church or a systematic belief, but in the person of Jesus Christ who is our Savior. And this is an opportunity over these next four weeks, and I would beg of you as a pastor that that Advent should not end just when December the 25th comes and goes, but Advent is really an opportunity to to keep our mind and heart organized throughout the year, always anticipating, always looking forward to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether it be far off in the future or maybe right here, right now in this hour of our own salvation. I I began thinking about uh, preaching when I returned from vacation on Wednesday of this week. And we boarded a plane from Florida and was heading back to Houston to get to warmer weather. And and I began to think about the things that the pilots were doing, or at least I hope the pilots were doing, while we were sitting in the back and I was getting my children strapped into their seats. I was hoping that they were making systems checks, that they were checking gauges and fuel, uh, checking food and coffee supply, uh, checking to make sure that uh, wheels go up and down and flaps go up and down and lights turn on and off and all the necessary things involved with commanding a plane that kind of distance. I I can't imagine all of the things they have to check and recheck and re-recheck. Without a doubt, they have a list, and I'm sure it's kind of an industry standard that this is the list you go through. And from time to time, I've been on a plane where they've said, I'm sorry, we have to go back to the terminal or we're not allowed to leave the gate because we aren't quite finished checking the list, going down the systems check of things. And then I thought about that a little bit more, and I I began to think about all of the lists that seem to dominate my life, and I would assume your life as well. We have lists of things we want to do before we kick the bucket. And sometimes those lists are short, and sometimes those lists are very long. We have lists of things we need to do from the time we wake up in the morning until the time we go to bed, and if we don't get those things done, if we don't accomplish that list, in some way we feel like we start the next day kind of behind schedule, don't we? And this is the time of the year when lists are very important for children and adults alike, Children getting their list to Santa Claus and adults getting their list to whoever they hope or think might be their best chance to get that special gift that they want or they're asking for. Lists. I suspect that whether we know it or not, we come into church week in and week out with some kind of list taking place in our mind. We, we don't have it written down anywhere, but we know that in the order of the hour or hour and a half that we're gonna be in this room together, that there's gonna be some song sung prayers prayed, an offering taken, announcements giving, a sermon preached, maybe even a drama sketch or the lighting of a candle. And and even though those things will vary in their place or order from week to week, we have been in church so long and so many times that we have a list that kind of goes forward and we just kind of wait and anticipate. And in our mind, we check them off one at a time, don't we? In some churches, they actually have them in order. And if you If you don't do what's in order, then chaos erupts because it's printed or it's placed on the screen and we can't move forward if we get something out of order on the list. Here's where I think, though, the challenge for the churchgoer, for the believer, for the one who's seeking to follow and understand Christ's life for us, occurs. And it's in that we often will read Scripture or sing a song And in our mind, we're checking off the list of things that we think we need to do or have done in order to meet the requirements that God has placed upon us or given to us. So as we read scripture, it's check, 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 check. I did all of that. I have all of this. I'm safe. I'm good. I can cruise. In fact, we may even be bold enough to think in our minds, although we would never say it out loud, that maybe that, this sermon is for someone else or this song or this prayer or this, this exercise is for someone else because I've been there, I've done that, I've checked it off my list. Now, before you think I'm just think, talking about us, I would suggest to you, I think that that's been a reoccurring problem for the people of faith throughout all of the ages. I want to turn your attention this morning to Isaiah chapter 2. It's the gospel text, the preaching text. i sorry, it's not the gospel text, but it's the preaching text for us today. And, And in my years as a pastor, I always, or almost always, preached from Isaiah during Advent. It just seemed to capture my attention and my heart. I believe the words of Isaiah were important for the people of Israel then and important for the people of Houston and all the people of faith now and forevermore. Because Isaiah had a very particular message, a very special message that that has not gone out of date. It is not spoiled. It's not old-fashioned. It is for now and for tomorrow and forevermore. But listen to Isaiah chapter 2 as Isaiah uh, really preaches or prophesies to the people of Jerusalem, a a people who felt very secure, a people who felt, felt very special, a people who felt very privileged, a people who felt chosen in their particular place and location in life and in God's plan for their life. And yet, despite the fact that they felt special or particular or chosen, they found themselves year after year, generation after generation, having to fight off the clans and the tribes and the kingdoms that would surround them and come to power. And they would rise and they would fall, and Jerusalem, Judah, Israel would be under attack or threat from generation to generation to generation. And they would go to great pains trying to figure out why this would be. They would try to explain it. They would try to figure it out. They would lament over it. Sometimes they would rebel against their God because of it. But there's obvious great struggle and pain and turmoil that takes place in the life of Jerusalem and all of Israel and Judah in particular. As they face the challenges of living a day-to-day life, yet believing by faith they are chosen by God, created For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." If we were living in Jerusalem in Isaiah's time, and Isaiah began to preach this message or prophesy this to the to the ears uh, to our ears to hear what he was saying, in time of great trouble and conflict and turmoil and fear, it would have been like a checklist going off in the ears of the people of Jerusalem in that day. As he says these things, as he prophesies these things, as he speaks about the condition and uh, of their surroundings and of of what they hoped to be or what they prayed would eventually become by the hand of deliverance of God. In this passage, Isaiah speaks of the power it is to be who they are. He speaks of them as a a people who the glory of God shines about and all the nations around them see and understand and and can tell that they are special, they are different, that they have been protected by some higher divine power and authority. In this passage, it speaks about the envy, if you will, of the nations that would look upon them and, and even turn and say, come let us learn and live with and, and, and be instructed by the same people, uh, by the same God or source of information as these people. Isaiah would prophesy and speak about the truth and the judgment coming forth from Jerusalem and from the people of God. And if you are one of those people in that time, you're thinking, power, Check. Judgment of God upon the sinners, check. Envy of all the nations, check. Truth from, for all the earth from this source or from this high mountain, check. Peace on earth as people put away their swords, double check. We have lived under the threat of war for way too long. But then Isaiah says something in that fifth verse. That if they had been checking off with check and double check, really amening hard and saying hallelujah, they would have stopped and paused and probably been silent and put their pins down for just a moment. For what he says in the very few words of verse 5 seemed to be counter to the things that they would have been hoping for and praying for and singing about and in their own eyes, in their own hearts, envisioning the way in which God was going to come and deliver and help them. When Isaiah says to them, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He is saying to them, there's something about our walk, there's a lot of things about our talk that is not consistent with being in the light that God has cast upon this world. Really to be plain, what he's saying here is, we are walking in darkness. Let's get out of the dark. Let's walk in darkness in the light that God is casting forth. And, and, and if you were in the group that was saying, power, envy, judgment, peace, all those type things, yes, 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 when he comes to his conclusion and says, let us walk in the light of the Lord, it's as if he's saying, before any of those things can take place, before any of those things will be true and lasting and eternal in this city and in your life, we need to begin walking on a different path. We need to begin seeking a different light and vision for who God is and who God's calling us to be. Now if we just take those five verses and set them aside, it it may be aside from the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's kind of difficult to really explain or, or, or get just out of those few words what he's truly saying. But if we if we look deeply at Isaiah, if we understand a little bit of the context of Isaiah, we know that Isaiah really had one thing and one thing only on his mind. Salvation. His name literally means the Lord saves. How would you like to have that as the meaning of your name? How many of you know the meaning of your name? A few of us do. Just, just Google it. You can find a, find a meaning of it. And if you don't like that meaning, make up one and just, just stick with that. Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. Really, really to be brutal, it says Yah saves. Yah is salvation. His entire life, his entire ministry, every conversation, every relationship, everything he wrote or spoke, everything he did was centered around this, this vision for, for a people who lived with the belief that God was their salvation, not their king, not their temple, not their priests, not their armies, not anything else, God. The belief, as simple as it is, the belief that God is our salvation is a difficult belief for us to live with. We accept it. We believe it. We acknowledge it. We sing about it. But to have that as our life's vision, our mission statement, if you will, is a difficult thing for us to live with. For If we truly believe that God is our salvation, we have to live with the reality that we don't save ourselves. We're not saved by the church or by a person or by any other thing, rhyme or reason we can think of. We are saved simply God now that is simple BBS theology 101 but I'm 40 something and I'm still wrestling with what that truly means day in and day out for my life and I suspect that that I'm not the only one in this room like that so I'm not insinuating or suggesting that we should all of a sudden become greatly judgmental at the The lack of faith in the people of Jerusalem as Isaiah prophesies this to them. For as sure as he was saying it to them, he says it to us. That power and glory and honor and salvation does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And if you ever taste it or embrace it even for just a moment, it is because God in his graciousness has bestowed it upon you upon us as his people. Isaiah means the Lord saves. And his entire life was about salvation. Now, not just saving from a sin or from from the uh, uh, penalty of sin, but saving from sinfulness that is bred within us. Sinfulness that not only tempts us, but leads us to act most often in our selfishness and our self-reliance, our self-independence. And not just sin and sinfulness, but the the sinful nature and the sinful effects of all the world that might come into conflict with the people of God. So Isaiah's vision of salvation from God is not small and, and personal focused on a person or a situation, but it's full, it's robust, it's larger than we could ever imagine with all of our imaginations put together and multiplied. For Isaiah believes that God is not small, not weak, not, able to, to, or not in need to be relevant from one generation to another, but God is eternal. God is awesome. God is the source of all things necessary for salvation, and he hasn't kept it for himself or put it in his pocket to, to keep for special days. He's bestowed it upon us He's cast it out into the world to save the world from sin and sinfulness and the sinful, harmful effects of sin in this world. Now Isaiah's entire life, prophecy, preaching, writing ministry, his entire relationships in all the world was about suggesting and, and urging people to, to believe in the Lord and seek salvation from him, full and free. The vision that that needs to be caught, not just from Jerusalem in their time of trouble and to their time of deliverance, but from each generation who believes. The salvation always has and always will belong to God. We are not the saviors. We are the savees. Maybe I should say that again. We are not the saviors. The church is not the savior. We are the saved. And our salvation is not just a protection plan to get us from this life to the next. But salvation from God is to give meaning for this life right here and right now. To make this life more what it was intended to be in the imagination of God when he created us man and woman. And when he stitched us together in our mother's womb. We truly are never who we were created to be until we find salvation in God. The temptation, though, of the American Christian is quite different. We are in constant temptation to attempt to live a faith that is focused on steps and formulas and checklists and experiences rather than on repentance and trust and surrender. And obedience. The object of our faith is not to be aware of the holiness of God, but to be on a path to walk in the light, to become and to live as the holy ones of God. So let's get in our mind, in our hearts, real clear that when when Isaiah speaks of the light, when he speaks of salvation, he in no way is talking about a momentary experience or status in this life, but he's speaking about a glorious thing that God is wanting to do in our life now and forevermore. And that our focus is not on who we are, but on who he is. Not on what we are doing, but on what he has done. Not on where we want to go, but on where he is is leading us we we i think will find ourselves caught between doing and being christians we do christian things we do churchy things we sing we speak we pray in churchy christian ways but it's not the doing of things that makes us the people of god the holy ones of god It's the being. It's the being, the ones of God. As Isaiah speaks of the light that has come as our salvation, he's saying to us, don't just say, hey, look, there's light. Walk in the light. Don't just say, hey, we need some more light. Turn to God and accept and embrace and and stand in the light that God has given we aren't doing righteous or Christian or churchy things. We are to be righteous and churchy and Christian beings. Another way of saying this is, is the difference between sampling something and saturated, being saturated by something. I sampled many a things on Thursday. Turkey and dressing and sweet potatoes. By the end of the day, I was saturated in sugar. And again, I suspect I'm not the only one in the room who needs to confess this morning. Doing and being is is the same as sampling and being saturated by. We aren't just to sample the good things of God, but to be saturated by all the good things of God. Jerusalem hears Isaiah speak these words. That in those days, God is going to do something and it's going to look and it's going to taste and it's going to feel and it's going to seem like this. But before those days occurred, gu- occurs, Jer- Jerusalem, we are to repent of who we are and what we've done and how we're living and walk in the light of God. Not just to sample the things that God's going to do to rescue us or redeem us, but to be saturated by living in the ever-righteous and eternal presence of the God who created us, who has saved us, and who is sustaining our faith. I love a quote by Mark Batterson, who's a pastor. Not a Nazarene pastor, but a pastor in Washington, D.C., He says, we've got just enough Jesus to be informed, but not enough to be transformed. Now, don't answer this out loud, but I wonder, is that true? I know that that certainly is true of of many people that I talk to. A person who I'm discipling kind of casually right now is is a work associate, pretty new to faith. She knows I'm kind of the resident preacher. And from time to time, she will pull me in her office and say, hey, I need to ask you a question. I got a Bible question for you. A couple weeks ago, she says, hey, um, I'm teaching um, preschool, Sunday school next week as kind of a fill-in for someone in my church. Can you give me the lowdown on Jonah? And I, I, I gave her the... The response that I always get to everybody to kind of let them off the hook. I said, do you want the elevator speech or would you like a lecture? And they usually choose the elevator speech. But this day she says, well, I, I, I want to understand. I, I, I'm not real familiar with that. And, and I, I'm teaching this. Let's talk about Jonah. So we spent about 30 minutes kind of talking about Jonah and I started with the historical perspective of Jonah and, and placed it in the canon and talked about that and then actually got to the scripture and began kind of going through the chapters of different things. And we get to the end of Jonah and she looks at me and she says, wow, he kind of had a bad ending, didn't he? And I said, I think he had a bad beginning, a bad middle and a bad ending. She goes, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But she goes, his ending certainly seemed to be bad or or at least sad and i said yeah i i I think that's maybe one of the saddest endings not the saddest but one of the saddest endings in all the scripture because you have this man who has this call of god in his life he has this heritage and this legacy to be one who has understanding and is in a place to be called god calls him sends him he rebels he runs he flees God does not squish him like a bug or smash him or kill him. He calls for him. And Jonah, in some ways, repents, and God, God restores him, redeems him, rescues him from the belly of the fish. He uses him in maybe one of, the most, one of the greatest evangelistic ways in the history of the world. Over 100,000 in Nineveh saved by the preaching of this reluctant preacher prophet. And then he gets mad at God because God actually showed grace and mercy to these people. And it ends with him talking to God and saying, I'm so mad at you, I'm so angry with you for being compassionate and merciful, I could just die. And as I talked with Emily that day about Jonah and about his life and ministry and call and his faith, I said, Here. Here's someone who has all the information in the world about this God who saves, this God who loves, this God who wants to restore all of humanity. He even has so much information that he's called and qualified to preach a message that turns the ears of people and kings and kingdoms and changes a city. And yet despite that information, despite having great experience with God, He finds himself at the end of at least the biblical story of his life, mad enough to die. Angry at God for doing a godlike thing, being sovereign, protecting his possession and his creation. Jonah has all of the information, none of the transformation. It's not different than what Isaiah was saying to Jerusalem and what he would say to us this morning. We are a people, you are a people, Jerusalem, who has all the information. You've got all the songs, all the stories. You've got a beautiful temple. You've got walls. You've got a city. You've got stories. You've got a legacy. You've got a heritage to be a people who live like they are the holy ones of God. That's the information. That's the legacy. That's the heritage. That's the tradition. And yet there's been very little, if any at all, transformation that's taken place in your life. True of Jonah, true of Jerusalem then, possibly, maybe, perhaps true of us today. It's right here that we begin to move away, I think, from just thinking about the prophecy of what was to come. And now we look back on what has come in the life and person of Jesus Christ. For as sure as Isaiah prophesies and preaches about this light that would come in those days... God sent his son, and he comes in a manger, and he lives the only perfect life ever, and he preaches and he teaches and he performs miracles and he forgives and he heals and he helps, and he casts a vision for what it means to live as the saved ones of God, building and living in and looking forward to the kingdom of God that has come here and now. And he dies on a rugged cross for the sins of all humanity. Resurrected and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes today, even now, for you and for me. Not just to have the information we need to say Jesus came, but to have the belief and the faith to say Jesus has come, Jesus is here, Jesus will come again. And in his coming, in his presence, is salvation for all the world seen and described most easily as the light of the world. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, I have not come to change any of the law or to undo any of the things that the prophet said I was going to do, but I've come to fulfill those things. I, I can't help but believe that Jesus is thinking not only of Isaiah's words, but other prophetic writings that were said about his birth, about his life, about even his death and resurrection. He says, I've not come to undo or change or say, erase all of the past, but I've come to say all of the past, all of the things that were preached as possibilities or as, as, apoc- or as futuristic events, I've come to say they are here, they are now, and they can be done. They can be realized. They can be experienced. You can be changed and transform. For salvation is not far away, but it's here and it's now. Isaiah was all about salvation. The Lord says, "Let us walk in this salvation in the same way that we walk in the light of the day." Not just in Isaiah chapter 2, but if we were to look Forward to Isaiah chapter 60, we would see, I think, what is, is maybe even some more poetic use of the word light to describe the salvation of God. In verse 1, arise, shine, for your light has come. In verse 19, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to your night, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down or your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Salvation that is from God is and always will be only through Jesus Christ who is the light of the world who comes to us in the form of a baby and leads to us in the form of a resurrected Messiah capable, worthy, positioned to be the salvation for all the world for all time for you and for me we can't reduce this just to a list we can't reduce it just to a rhyme i would even say it like this we can't even reduce it to a perfect prayer For salvation comes as we walk in faith in Christ Jesus, believing that not only is he the son of God, but he's a salvation for all the world, not just for Jerusalem in 8th century BC, not just for Houston in 20th century AD, but for as long as the earth will stand, as long as we will have within us the desire to seek out and define and discover who created us and what will happen next. Will the voice of Isaiah come, O people of God, O people of Jacob, O chosen ones of the one who creates all things, let us look up and see the light that has come to us in Jesus Christ and not just say, oh, look, there's some lights. Let us be a people who run into that light and walk forevermore in the salvation that God has provided to us, full and free. Not because we have done anything special, but because in the eyes and in the heart of God, we are a special possession. If you've watched the news these last few days, you might be aware that there is a comet in our atmosphere, Comet Ison. Now, I, I didn't do any research this morning to see if this has changed, but but there's been some change in the details of this comet. Anybody familiar with this story? Okay. There's a comet that on Thanksgiving Day did what they call kind of a wrap around the sun. They say this comet is probably 100 million years old, which is hard for me to fathom, but I'm gonna take their advice on that. It was spotted September of 2012 and they began pinpointing how it was going to intersect with our atmosphere and come into contact with the sun and the moon and the earth at least from a visibility standpoint. So on Thanksgiving Day it it did a wrap around the sun and and since then there's been some debate if the comet was destroyed or just, just blew up as it got close to the sun it got, this is how close it got to the sun, a million miles away from the sun, okay? And so some of the pictures are coming back even, even this morning and in the next few days, I think, to let us know what's gonna happen. If it made it past its slingshot, in December, in the morning, we will be able to see this comet in the sky. Later in December, in the evening, we'll be able to see this comet in the sky, and it will be, it will be like a star, it will be, be like a light that we've, don't usually see and on December the 26th if, if it made it around its wrap around the sun there's a picture of the comet by the way from the Hubble on December the 26th if it, if it survived its wrap and close encounter around the sun it's going to come to its closest point to us 40 million miles away and I suspect that We'll stand in our yards, maybe with a telescope, maybe with binoculars. If you have LASIK vision, maybe you don't need any of those things. You'll be able to see it. And we'll stare and we'll go, wow, can you see that? And I'll have to get Jamie and Davis to show me where it is, and I'll say, wow, I can't believe that. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And if it survives and we see it and we have these kind of star parties in the backyard and we're able to see it, it won't last long because by about the 10th of January it will disappear, never to be seen again. Except maybe with the best of outer space telescopes. And children will remember the day or the night that they stood in the yard with their parents and they saw the comet. Bloggers will blog about what it means or what it doesn't mean. And scientists will probably write a paper on it and have a symposium for it. And then by the middle of January, no one will talk about it anymore. That's not the nature of the light that we will experience at Christmas in Advent in Jesus Christ. If we catch a vision right now, that, that Christmas, that Advent, is not about anything else but salvation through God. And that while it's perfectly appropriate to have traditions and time off and gatherings and special services and all of those type things, we can never lose sight of the purpose and the meaning of what's taking place when we talk about a baby born in a manger. When we talk about the Son of God who's come and been incarnated into this world when we begin to pick up the, the writings of the, the gospel writers and, and the rest of, of scripture who teaches us and tells us what it means, and we can't just take it and check it off our list that we know this, we got that, we've been there, we've done that, but we have to be enraptured. We have to be, our imaginations have to be captured, if you will, by the very living presence of Jesus Christ who has come not to be a shining star in the sky, but to come to the earth to come to you and me to fulfill all of the things that the prophet said from long ago and to expound on the story through your life and my life and this church and our world that the kingdom of God has come near and we should never ever, 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 ever be the same again. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. I think in your, in your worship folder, there's, there's a, a list, kind of a checklist of five things. Maybe you don't have five things. But in a moment, I'm going to pray, and, and then we're going to sing a closing song. And whether it's right now or, or later in the day, I, I, I would like to kind of encourage you to, to begin thinking about the checklist Of the, of the things that, that maybe this Christmas season you're asking, you're wanting, you're waiting on God to show you. Not, not a new watch, not a new car keys or, or a new trip. But God, these are the things that I want desperately to understand and know and believe about you. For my life is not about what I have or what I've done or where I'm going. But about who I am in you. And before I make any list that, that has gifts or people to see or cards to send to, let me make a list of the theological things that I think are vital for me and my family to get in this season. The things about you that I need to know. I need to witness. I need to be transformed by And use this list daily to pray and say, God, remember, on the first Sunday of Advent, I heard you say this, and my heart went pitter-patter because I believe that that is what I've longed and prayed and ached for for a long time. Fulfill it in this season, in my life, right here and right now. But church, let us not go through the motions of another Christmas season. And miss the story of salvation that is right in the heart of everything that's here. Jesus is the light of our salvation. Salvation is found in no other place, in no other story, in no other song. It's in him and him alone. Let's stand this morning. Father, we thank you for this day and for your love for us. You're a wonderful and gracious Compassionate God. You forgive us as we are. You walk with us where we go. You call us by name. You know us in intimate ways. And Lord, while we are squeezed and shaped so often by the events and the details of this world, what we really long for, Lord, to be shaped and molded and crafted into the vessels of salvation that you want us to be. So Lord, I, I pray today, right now, that you would open up our hearts and pour into us salvation. You'd open up our eyes to see the light of the world that has come so that we may walk in it. You'd open up our ears, Lord, that we may hear not just the sounds of the season, but Lord, we may hear the story of old that says in those days, you will raise your city up, your people up, your temple up in a high and lofty place where all the world may see what it means to be and live in the city of God and to be the people of God. Lord, let us not only long for those days to come, let us work to be a part of building those days here and now, today, and forevermore, we pray. Amen.